Welcome back everyone to Finance Podcast Week and our last live stream of the year. Our December roundtable featuring Christina Wise of the Wealthy Wealthy Podcast and founder of Good Life Companies and Diana Merriam of the Optimal Daily Finance Podcast and Economy Conference. As we dive into the mindset that entrepreneurs have about money and how to change your mindset for success. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, Finance Podcast Week has live stream sessions like this one with top finance podcasters and experts from around the world. We also have exclusive recorded episodes on the Finance Week podcast channel, so make sure to check those out as well. Download the Podbean app and follow the Finance Podcast Week channel to receive notifications in real time when we go live and to replay all of the live streams from all of our events. Finance Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetizing platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience. For everyone listening, you can start your own live stream for free on Podbean. The content of Finance Podcast Week is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained on our site, live streams, and podcasts constitute a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Podbean or any third-party service providers to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments. And now, let's get started. Hello and welcome. Hello, hello. Thanks so much for having us. Excited to be here. Absolutely. So we're here with Christina and Diana. And as we get started, I'd love for the both of you to introduce yourself in your own words about your journeys, the businesses you've built, and the podcast that you've created and host. So let's... Oh, yeah. I was going to say, Diana, let's... Sure. So I am the host of the Optimal Finance Daily Podcast, and this podcast is a narration-style show where I am reading blog posts from very popular personal finance bloggers, and then I offer a little bit of my own commentary on it. So it is every single day of the year in 10 minutes or less. I like to say that these amazing bloggers like wrote these great songs, and I get to perform the covers. And then I guess I'll also jump in and talk about the Economy Conference, which is the business that I started. Um, this is an event that's rooted in the FIRE movement. FIRE stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. And it's essentially like the TED Talks of the FIRE movement. Um, it's also been described as a party about money, which is exactly the vibe that I was going for. And so this is a yearly event that happens at uh, the University of Cincinnati. We actually just had our last event a little over a month ago. Um, and so if you go to my YouTube channel, uh, Economy Conference, and that's Economy with an M-E at the end, you'll get to see all of the main stage speeches. We have them all recorded and up there for your viewing pleasure. Fantastic. Yeah, I wanted you. To, we wanted to hear about economy, Diana. <laughs> um, and Christina, for everybody who's just joining for the first time or for this episode, tell everyone a little bit about your journey. Uh, introduce yourself in your own words and the Wealthy Wealthy podcast as well. Yeah, the Wealthy Wealthy podcast really stems out of I got really sick because I was in the pursuit of money and wealth and I just 
more or less work myself to death if to make the long story short. But Wealthy Wealthy came out of the idea that money wealth is critically important because money's what saved my life if I hadn't have been an avid investor, had cash, liquid assets, non-liquid assets that I could sell in the tune of a quarter million dollars to save my life, I literally wouldn't be here. So it just created this awareness when I was fighting so hard of how important money was, because if I didn't have it, I just, you know, um, like I said, I probably wouldn't be here. On the other hand, when I was on my kind of proverbial and literal deathbed, I didn't care about the money. And so it's such an oxymoron or such this polarity because on one hand, I was writing check after check after check because I was writing any check that I thought might help save me and heal me. So, I mean, I just kept writing the next check. Unfortunately, the money was there. But at the same time, I didn't care about my money. I didn't care about my success. I didn't care about my, I didn't care about my accolades on the wall. All I realized was like, oh my God, I just used and abused my body. And I was always on this track of more and more and more success, 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 achievement, achievement, achievement. And I just realized I'd missed my life. Like I was always holding off for some future to be able to kind of enjoy everything that I had created. And so I realized that money is more important than everything, but it's not about the money. The money just underwrites the cost of living a good life. So when we understand how much money is enough, what is a good life, what's meaningful, not meaningful, and really are able to identify what I call life by design, what is a good life and how much does it cost to live it, then we can just have this symbiotic peace and harmony relationship with our money. But wealthy, wealthy, the second wealth is W-E-L-L-T-H. It's our bodies, our number one asset and our ass and our and our life is is why we have the assets to support the lifestyle. So that's the Wealthy Wealthy podcast where we talk about money, life, success, mindset, spirituality, you know, anything that just keeps us grounded in what's most important. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to talk about non-financial assets later on today if we have a little bit of time because I think a lot of wealth, it really has to do with, you know, non-financial, right? It has to do with our time. It has to do with our health and some other factors that really add to the quality of life where you don't notice them when you have them, (laughs) right? But when you don't have them, you definitely notice when you don't have your health or when you don't have time or things like that. But I want to jump into the basics. Um, And Christina, we'll start with you on this one because I'm really excited to hear your answer about this. And I know you've done a lot of work and spoken on within finance podcast week about this. Um, but I'd love to hear from the both of you, Christina, you first, what does money mindset mean to you? Well, money mindset, I really, I encapsulated into a few different pillars, if you will. And the first thing is, you know, one of my favorite, one of my favorite mentors, his name is Jim quick. And he has just all these different sayings. I quote him quite often. And one of those is behaviors follow beliefs. So if we're in behaviors with our money, that are not serving us like we're just no matter how much money we make we're constantly in the grind paycheck to paycheck commission to commission you know trying to put in more money in the business not getting enough out you know it's it, that's some type of behavior the results are a result of a behavior that's a result of a belief so the first part of mindset that i like to look at is or what if our what are our beliefs about money and i think a lot of this it's not rocket science if we just take some space and think about it it all makes complete sense But if we've really never looked at these subconscious underlining beliefs, then they're probably still ruling us because as children, it's not just in money, money is like anything else. We adopt the beliefs of our parents and kind of that peer group. 
So we pick up the narratives, the beliefs, the patterns that we saw our parents, and it just becomes normal in the sense it's so subconscious that we don't even realize we're stuck in these beliefs and patterns. And so that's part of the work with money is, is part of money mindset is what are my beliefs? What are those beliefs or sayings, narratives? What are the words that I use? If we find ourselves saying something all the time, as simple as I can't afford it or telling our children we can't afford it, that's a mindset. And it's a belief system like we really can't afford it. And so any belief we can start looking at by listening to the words that we use and start catching ourselves. And that's one I used for a long time and used with my children for a long time until I realized it. And it's like, oh, I need to change that belief. That belief's not true. I can afford almost everything that I say I can't afford. Maybe I'm just not choosing to buy it right now. Maybe something else is more important that I want to, that I would like to purchase instead of that. So that's just looking at our beliefs. It can be identified through our language many times and just catching ourselves. Another piece of mindset is really the relationship to money. And a relationship kind of is a function of the of, out of beliefs too. But if we have a relationship of, of, meaning we don't have a relationship with our money, again, that's usually a telltale sign that, that our mindset is, is off because when we want to have money to fund the cost of living a good, meaningful, profound life, then the way we need to do that, the only way to really do that and to create space and time and, and lack of financial stress and anxiety and, and all the things that come with it is what is the relationship? Do we have a loving, kind, compassionate, attentive, intimate relationship with our money? Meaning we spend time at it, we look at it, we manage it, we move it. We have a narrative about it. We know our numbers. We like to, you know, we're, we're building those surpluses. We, we love to learn about it. We have mentors, coaches, read books. You know, all these things which are required because money is an art and a science. I mean, it is math. It's very practical. And if we don't understand the practical aspects and kind of the more metaphysical, the the universal laws of money, then we're probably going to be self-sabotaging forever without even knowing it. So that's what I call the relationship. We want to have this very close, intimate, connected relationship with our money. So that's the next piece of mindset. And then the final one is really just, you know, where we find ourselves, it's more, you know, um, fundamental is do we have a mindset more of lack, meaning lack and never enough and always kind of in that never enough, I'm in lack, I'm in lack, you know, it's not fair or where's all the money? Do we have, do we hold that type of mindset or do we have a mindset that is more abundant, meaning there's plenty, there's more money, there's money everywhere. We can create it, we can grow it, we can build it. We can see it where, you know, it's otherwise invisible. And when we really start to adopt this, this faith-based abundant mindset and, and lean and move into that and start doing the work to, to be more and more, spend more time in the abundant mindset versus the scarcity and lack, it just opens up all new possibilities. So those are like the three key components. And the final thing I'll say to that, that's not mindset, but is to understand that even if the best mindsets don't match up with a certain foundational um, skill set, like this knowledge, the practical pieces of money, all the mindsets, only 50% of the equation, the other parts, the skill set. So we always need to match up that piece too. But hopefully part of the mindset piece is to create this desire to want to learn money in a way that's practical so that we can have money and use money in a way that supports our, our dreams and ambitions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's something where it's really about having, I, I love what you're saying about having the practical skill with the mindset because you can do 
all the mindset work in the world, but if you don't have the tools or the financial literacy, you're only going to get so far. And and it's the same in the reverse as well, right? Like if you have the financial literacy, but you have limiting beliefs, you're, you know, you're, there's a ceiling there. So Diana, I'd love to hear from your end as well about what money mindset means to you. Yeah. I mean, I really agree with everything that Christina said. I really believe that money mindset is about how you internalize your relationship with money. And oftentimes we're either in a mindset of scarcity or we're in a mindset of abundance. And I think we've been conditioned since birth to be in a mindset of scarcity. You know, we live in a very consumerist culture where advertisers are telling us every day that we're not enough that we don't have enough, that we need to buy X, Y, and Z, that we need more money and more stuff and more success, right? We, have, we are in this perpetual state of never feeling like we have enough and that we don't have enough self-worth even. That really affects our, our ability to see our self-worth. And so I think you have to be very intentional of shifting your mindset from scarcity to abundance. And the way that you do that is by fostering a sense of gratitude and appreciation for the material wealth that you already have. And so I know for me, you know, in my 20s, I was living it up in New York City, was completely financially illiterate. And I was just spending with abandon and not paying attention to my money at all. And once I was able to kind of pause and recognize that I'm living paycheck to paycheck and drowning in debt because I'm, I'm swiping that credit card for things that I think are going to make me feel better about myself. And so when I intentionally stopped doing that and could really recognize the abundance I already had and the fact that I can be resourceful and creative about getting my needs met it made me feel incredibly abundant and that led to generating a lot more wealth you know i ended up getting out of 30 grand of debt in 11 months and from there i started saving 60% of my income and as my income grew you know then my investments grow then my wealth grows then my net worth grows and you know i just kind of had another challenge to myself in the abundance mindset and that i left my full time job earlier this year and so my income actually reduced about $100,000 this year. And yet I saw absolutely no change in my lifestyle because I was living so far below my means already. And now I have an abundance of time and I have abundance of creativity and relationships. And, you know, even though my income number has dropped, I feel that my wealth has expanded in many more ways than just with money. Um, so that I would say is all attributed to me moving from that scarcity mindset into an abundance mindset. Wow. Wow. Well, first of all, I just want to say congratulations because uh, <laughs> I know we're in the what many people are calling the great resignation. So it's always, I think, really empowering to hear people's stories of changing their career or changing their routine or their job out of choice, you know, and saying, I'm making an empowered decision. Um, and that it doesn't have to mean scarcity, which I think is, is a really great example for a lot of people out there. 
Absolutely. And I'll just add to what you just said that I think when it comes to living within our means for a lot of people that, and myself included, that's going to mean reducing your expenses. And a lot of people associate that with deprivation, right? If I'm not spending as much money on all the fancy things, I'm going to be deprived because I'm conditioned to want more. And so I think when you, from an abundance mindset perspective, when you internally impose restriction on yourself, it opens up the opportunity for personal development. When it's externally imposed on you through a job loss, through a health scare, through some loss of income, that can be more challenging to manage. And so I've always kind of recognized when I was cleaning up my money situation that I wanted to be the one to put that self-imposed restriction and build my frugal muscles and my resilience um, on my own terms before it was imposed on me externally. Absolutely. And I think that's that's a really interesting way to view, I guess, the the I want to say like the results of of what happens to us in life and and really owning our own choices, right? Whether you know, obviously circumstances and life happens, right? But it's something where if we find that lesson within ourselves or we create those circumstances or we design those circumstances, it's really something where the control and and the power is with us because we're sitting in the driver's seat. Um, fantastic. And I think before, before we move on to the next question, I kind of want to want to circle back on what you said a little bit on the kind of the media onslaught of, you know, living above our means and being pushed um, by the media to want to spend more and to want to be more and to want to, you know, kind of flaunt it, that, that very media driven image that people have and try and keep up with. Um, And I thought it was really interesting because I think as women specifically, this panel was originally planned to be a bit more mixed, but right now it's all women. So I'd really like to get both of your perspectives on the fact that, you know, how the media really shapes, um, women's self image. And I, I just wonder as female entrepreneurs, how, how the media has really shaped your financial image of yourselves as well. Uh, Diana, let's start with. Hmm. Well, I will say that you know, when I was reducing my expenses, getting out of that 30 grand of debt, I was extremely uh, aggressive about it. And so I would not spend money on anything that wasn't totally necessary. And one of those things was wearing makeup. I actually stopped wearing makeup and got more comfortable with what my face looks like, (laughs) you know, and I got more comfortable with in enjoying my own company and spending more time alone and reading books and journaling and working out. And, you know, when you take away the excessive consumerism, you kind of really get down to what's more important in life. And I think it's more important for me to, again, be comfortable with what my face looks like than to cover it up to make me feel better about myself. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with makeup. I wear a little bit of makeup now. Um, but I think it was a very worthy exercise. And I think when it comes to the media onslaught, you know, I think what it really affects is our own internal sense of direction. We become so concerned why, 
with what society thinks we should do, that we no longer are able to hear our own voice. And I think that we have to take the time to kind of unravel that and really start to question, am I starting this business or wearing this makeup or spending this money because it's something that I truly want to do? Or is it something that I have been conditioned to want? And I think that is those kind of questions are really fostered through a sense of self-awareness and being able to be quiet with yourself and tune in to your own internal guidance. We're not really encouraged in our society to do that. And, um, you know, I think for me, it's, it's been on every aspect of my life, from my business to my relationships, to my money, to my career, being able to be more self-directed um, leads to a lot more satisfaction when it comes to my decisions. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's, that's a really valuable lesson. And I mean, there was a lot there, but I think, I think it's just something where when you look at how, you know, to be self-focused on that journey, I think it really comes down to getting to know ourselves and getting to the point where you're not trying to distract yourself from a feeling or uncomfortability or being tired or a sense of not feeling enough, but it's really about, you know, being comfortable with yourself enough that you don't need that external validation. So that's a really valid point. And I think what you said about the makeup was really interesting. Um, just becoming more comfortable with your own face. Like that's, it's uh, what a concept, right? <laughs> I mean, it sounds radical, but I think it's also something where, you know, now in the modern world to say like, okay, I, I'm not going to wear makeup for, you know, nine months or whatever it is. I think that is a bit radical for, for a large percentage of the population. So that is quite interesting. Um, Christina, did you, did you want to weigh in on this one as well? Yeah, I, I love that one. Uh, a couple things came to mind is just something kind of in this context, a little, a little outside, but I'm actually writing a women in crypto course right now. And the reason why it's not because I'm some master of crypto, I'd consider myself a beginner, but I'm definitely an investor and I've definitely, you know, learned the basics and, you know, a, a player and it's super exciting. But the reason why is that when I started thinking about it, I realized that every mentor, every YouTube video, um, I'm in a couple WhatsApp groups and you know, so, so on and so forth. Every single person that I learn from or have a conversation with are men. Even so much is that when I'm at dinner parties or hanging out with friends, the men and I are talking about crypto. What are we invested in? Why? You know, what are we seeing? What are our thoughts, our philosophies, our beliefs? How much do we have in? All these types of conversations and their, their significant others or wives aren't in the conversation. I'm the, I'm the sole female in the conversation with men. And it's interesting. I'm, I'm older than you guys are. So, you know, I've, you know, built businesses. I've built my net worth. I've totally hit a very high financial freedom number because, you know, I've got a little bit of age on my side. And so I've been, I've been through this for a long time. And, you know, when I was in uh, just finance and real estate technology, I was one of the few women that was always kind of in the board meetings, if not the only one. And I never really thought too much about it. I just, you know, did what I did and didn't spend any time there. 
But what I found interesting of late is like, well, where we as women, like, where are we in this in this conversation? Why aren't women excited about crypto? Why aren't we showing up 50%? Why aren't we having the conversations? And so I just, I don't have an answer for that other than I just really throw out the question to all of us as women. Like, why aren't we, why aren't we more engaged in this money conversation? What is underneath that? Because whatever's at the root that might keep women from making millions and millions of dollars, maybe not, maybe I'll lose all my money in crypto, who knows? But on the flip side, you know, those of us that have made men, it's like men, me and my men friends who are having the conversations and helping each other, you know, kind of make money at this. So that's where I go as again, I don't have an answer other than I'm creating, I'm writing this women in crypto course for no other reason than to hopefully inspire we as women to step up, to lean in this crypto. It's, it's like, it's leveling the playing fields. It's not a men, female game anymore, right? You know, you don't have, you wear makeup or not. You can do it from your sofa. You don't have to walk into a boardroom or all the other things that I've had to put up with earlier in my career and learn to navigate that. So Anyway, I just, I invite all women to really, you know, and then I have a money school. So where my business is called Wise Money Method, and it's it's a it's a money school, money academy, and I don't promote to men or women. I mean, I just say, hey, if you need to get your money mindset fixed and you want to learn how to build wealth, then I'm your person. And here's a very prescriptive methodology for how to do it. And, but it's about 80% women, which I love because I think just being a woman, you know, I attract more women in this conversation. But when I have the sales conversations, the breakthrough conversations, you know, most often the conversation, like I love it. Like women are like, I finally want to take charge of my money. But underneath this is even though they're, I only, my school is only for entrepreneurs. So these are women business owners and entrepreneurs, you know, they're, they're taking those types of risks and taking that type of action and ambition to make money. But at the same time, they don't know their numbers. They're abdicating the bookkeeping. They're not having conversations. They're still terrified of it. They want to build a business and make it, but they're still terrified of the money or don't feel like they're worthy or they're smart enough or something underneath. Now, granted, they're taking the money school to change that. But I'll complete all that by saying it's just, you know, I, they, I love um, Diana, for example, like she's just such an example of a young woman that's just owning, you know, her financial future. She's made big, bold decisions to leave corporate America when she found herself in a situation of, of kind of inequality. And it's like, that doesn't matter. I can create something different by really learning and owning my money narrative and my money skill set. And I just say that that's, that's open to all of us. It's, it's a wide open invitation right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to talk a little bit about communication around money a, a little bit further on. Um, but moving forward right now, I want to pivot slightly because you're both business owners and entrepreneurs. And Christina, I know you've you've started some incredible businesses. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about how money mindset affects the choices you make as an entrepreneur and how you operate your business. Because I think from from one angle, we can look at money mindset and the abundance mentality versus scarcity um, from a personal finance standpoint. But I also want to talk a little bit about as entrepreneurs, the, the both of you, um, what it's like in terms of making decisions on operating a business and, you know, making 
making those decisions on a business level beyond the personal finance sphere. So Christina, do, can you start with that and jump in? Is the question about mindset specifically? Yeah, like how how mindset affects the choices you make as an entrepreneur and in terms of the operating of your business, not necessarily in terms of taking risks, but beyond the personal finance sphere and really in terms of leading a business. Yeah, well, uh, that's a, I can go a lot of different directions with that question. The interesting thing is, is again, and I just, this is all anecdotal experience because I, like I said, I have a money school and the first person, the first um, course or 101 is personal finance and 201 is business finance. And so what I do is I have a lot of entrepreneurs who come, come through my program to really learn kind of the fundamentals of running a small business, which includes financials. And what I find fascinating is that how many, the numbers of people that go through this program, and they're all entrepreneurs, that they're really great at making money, but they focus all of their attention and even resources on top line, meaning revenue. They're really not focused on profit and they don't know the basics of how to read a profit and loss, how to read a balance sheet and while it's important, why it's important. They don't, um, they're abdicating many times the bookkeeping, they're running tons of personal expenses through their business or vice versa. And they really don't know their numbers with the same money mindset. So I guess the point here I wanna make with the mindset is that just because you're a business owner, small business owner, or think you might wanna be one, the same mindset applies. So the same fear of money, even though it looks like an entrepreneur or small business person is going to be great at money because that's kind of why they're in it to, to a large extent is to maybe make impact, do something really well and to make more money or at least have more time, which if we don't manage our money well in our business, we're not going to have more time. We're going to have more time by having a W-2 job and getting you know weekends and paid vacation that you don't get with a small business when you don't let the money create it so the money works for you versus the other way around. So again, that fear of money, the scarcity mindset, the not paying attention to it, the same things that one would find in personal finance, for example, that usually what happens when we're not attentive to our money, kind of along the lines of what Diana is saying is that one, you know, we're spending money according to external appearance. But when we look at that underneath the microscope, the money microscope, what we're seeing is that there's, by not virtue, but not paying attention, we're spending all of this kind of money that in the aggregate adds up to a ton of money on, a, on an annualized basis. It's kind of just waste. I mean, it's not attached to anything that's remotely improving our lives. And it's usually robbing us of our ability to start investing and you know creating that, that surplus that allows us to buy assets that ultimately will buy our time. And the same thing happens in our business is it's just so easy to swipe a credit card in a business or have all these fees and expenses that aren't connected to income. And then we're and then what I find is these small business owners are always they're defeating their personal wealth by putting all their money back into the business, trying to grow this business. who's like a big monster who just keeps eating their dollars. So I'll surmise all that to say that when we're in business or small business, it is even more important to want to get good at the money, understand how to move it, understand the basic numbers, know how to look at a financial statement and not abdicate it. And again, just want to have a real desire to see how the, all the money operates inside the business with that money mindset of 
of creativity for the sake of profitability, because that profitability what allows longevity and that profitability is what funds our personal life to be able to kind of use our entrepreneurial mindset and abilities to be able to fund, you know, again, our good life. Yeah, absolutely. Diana, did you want to weigh in as well? Because you have a, a business that's kind of unique in terms of, you know, it's really an event-based business. And from that mindset as an entrepreneur, how has your money mindset really come into play in terms of the economy conference? Yeah. I mean, I had to move from a scarcity mindset in my business to a more abundant mindset, just like I had to do in my personal life. And so what that looked like for me is I was so scared to start my business because I was so scared to lose money. In my scarcity mindset, losing money was the worst thing that could happen. But from an abundance mindset, actually the worst thing that could happen is not realizing my potential. And so my worst fear from a scarcity perspective actually did happen. In my first year of business, I took a 40 grand loss on my first event, which you know, from a purely business perspective, you could say, well, I didn't sell enough tickets to cover my expenses. And so clearly there's not enough consumer demand for this. And I gave it a go, but you know, I've, I've got to cancel it so that I don't take this 40 grand loss. I could have seen it from, from a purely financial perspective. But by this point, I had been working on the economy conference for 20 months. I was very emotionally attached to it. And I, I decided to look at it from a different perspective and say, okay, what if, what if I looked at this business like a restaurant business? Most restaurants aren't going to even break even until three to five years in. So what if I looked at it like that, that it will be profitable in the long run? I had a lot of reason to believe that I would get there eventually. And so do I have the guts to stick it out? Um, do I have the financial bandwidth from my W-2 job to be able to float this and basically self-fund my business? Um, I think the reason why I could take that 40 grand loss, which is actually a 40 grand investment, is because I had such solid footing on my finances otherwise. So when I started saving 60% of my income, I was fully funding my 401k, my HSA, and my uh, Roth IRA. So that's $29,000 a year that I was saving. On top of that, I was saving about 40 grand in an after-tax brokerage. So what I was able to do that year that I took a 40 grand loss, and I'm doing air quotes, is I was able to cash flow that. I didn't have to take on any debt. I didn't have to get any investors. I was able to take that 40 grand and rather than put it in my after-tax brokerage, I put it into the business. And now that 40 grand loss becomes this 40 grand investment. I think the other way I was able to shift into an abundance mindset around this investment is you've got to be able, when you're taking a risk like this in entrepreneurship, I don't believe in like rating your 401k and putting yourself in the position to go bankrupt for entrepreneurship. I don't believe in that. I, I would have not done that for myself. Um, but I looked at it as, okay, if I never made this 40 grand back, if this 40 grand was gone forever, I kind of considered it like, I don't have any children. I don't plan on having any children. Economy is my baby. 
And so if I were to have an actual baby, I'd spend a hell of a lot more than 40 grand over 18 years, right? But I would probably be in the position to create something, a human life that I was really proud of. And I look at economy that way, that even if I never made that 40 grand back, I created something that I was really proud of. And that is worth a 40 grand loss to me. And now I'm in a position where, you know, the business is actually set to be extremely profitable in year five, and that's going to be 2023. Now it took me five years to get there, but the abundance mindset of believing that this investment will pay off in the long run um, is what's kind of kept me holding on. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's incredible. And I think so inspirational when people hear about your journey, because when everybody starts a business, they think, okay, and then it'll be profitable. But it's really challenging to think about, okay, well, what if it's not profitable for three years, for the first 18 months, for five years? You know, what does that look like? And and that really leads uh, to the next question that we have coming up. And Christine, I really like how you spoke to the financial literacy that you provide in your money school as well, because the next question is from a financial perspective in a business, when should you cut your losses? And when should you dig in and really kind of, um, I guess, buckle in for the ride? Um, Christina, let's start with you on this one. Okay, yeah, there's, again, there's so much we can unpack. And, and there's always this, I'd say this kind of seesaw effect of, of mindset, kind of the, the abundance, the mindset, like everything Diana's talking about. And then again, the more practical piece. And, you know, we're, we're always kind of on this teeter totter and just kind of enjoying the back and forth and checking both, you know, if we're up and down on either, but even with the idea of, let's say we use a restaurant. I like that example is part of it going in is the mindset like, okay, getting over the, what if I lose this money? So again, if I go back to why I think, let's say someone might not be investing in crypto is because the mindset is I'm afraid to lose my money. And that's a really important part, important thing to check into. It's afraid of loss. So in a spiritual law, in a spiritual law, anything that's driven by fear is already a loss. <laughs> so that, you know, that's a place to, to do some work is it's like being attached to the positive gain, the opportunities, the, the abundance, what's available, be able to connect to our own confidence and ability to learn and to, to move and make changes and, you know, that, and believe it in ourselves. But, but a lot of that requires knowledge too. So again, that fear of loss thing tends to keep us from making some bold choices in life. And those bold choices is kind of where the juice can be, risk reward. With, the, with that piece in the more practical side, if we're starting a business, thinking of starting a business or in our business, again, what I find is that, you know, small business, new entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, they'll just keep swiping the credit card. Meaning if I, if I spend money, if I create a podcast, maybe that's the golden ticket that's going to make me rich in my business. If I, you know, get, if I spend a hundred thousand dollars a month on, on YouTube ads or social media, right. maybe that's so so really just looking for the golden ticket, golden ticket, like that golden ticket. So what we want to do to know when to cut bait and uh, is to really look at capitalization and capitalization is a financial term. 
And what that means is if we have money sitting in a savings account and it's just cash that we've saved, that's savings, it's cash. That's we identify it as cash. So if we're afraid to lose that cash and we're attached to that cash sitting there, that cash can't do anything but sit there. And so it's kind of idle money. It's it's not it has no momentum. It creates no energy. But now if we save that money, for example, and say, I want to start a new business, and then it's like, okay, I have $100,000 that I've saved, or that means we're kind of self-funding this, or I borrowed, or whatever the case is, that becomes the capitalization bucket. So what that means is that that's our, that's our amount. And so now it's not an expense. This is an investment that I can choose to put $100,000 into my new business, or I could go put it into Tesla stock, right? It's meant to invest in something. We've saved it to invest it. And that's an investor mindset. And we want an investor mindset in our own business. And so when we look at that, I'm investing this $100,000 instead of Tesla. I'm invited, you know, I'm investing it into Christina Wise business. And now I'm going to create a business plan and I'm going to use that money to fund the startup at startup capital of this business or the next piece of gross of the business. Now I want to hold that $100,000 accountable to make that $100,000 hopefully into maybe $250,000 or, or $500,000. And that's all based on the business strategy and really identifying how we're going to break down that investment. Just as though if we asked an investor to invest in our new business, they're going to want to see a business plan. They're going to want to know that there's you know, a really good strategy for converting their $100,000 into some multiple of $100,000. Otherwise, they'd never invest in you. And that investor, if things are going sideways or the business just isn't getting off the ground, they're probably going to be like, nope, not putting any more into it. I'm out on this one. I'm just going to, you know, take the loss and learn the lessons. And there's always gain and lessons. So that's where we cut bait, too, is that if you have a business, instead of continue to swipe the credit card month over month, year over year, hoping that that next magic bullet is what's going to save the business and spend money accordingly, it's like, nope. I ran through my capital on this one. So I need a new business, new business plan, new capital or something that's really identified with some sort of strategy, strategy attached or something next. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's so interesting what you're saying in terms of that wishful thinking that a lot of people have like, oh, I'll start a business and then it'll just magically be successful. And I think it's important to have that capitalization like you mentioned um, and then also I, before Diana, before we go to you, I, I really also want to just reflect back that you talked about that fear of loss. And I think for a lot of people, when they look at an investment, they look at, you know, what they could lose, but also I, I think an aspect that we may not always look at is what would you, what would the cost be of not making the decision to move forward? Or what would the cost be of being in the same place a year from now? So I think that is also a factor as well that you spoke to so eloquently. Um, Dan, I'd like to hear also from your end because you really live this journey with economy. You know, do you have any insight on when you should cut your losses and when you should, you know, or cut bait <laughs> or when you should mm -hmm. dig in? Yeah, I mean, I'll just speak from my perspective. My personal preference is that I don't want to take on any debt for my business. Now, depending on what kind of business you're starting, I mean, if you're like a tech founder, you know, you're probably going to need investors depending on, you know, what it's going to cost to build whatever your product is. It's not, obviously it's not feasible for no one to take on any debt to start a business. But for me and my risk tolerance, um, I just, I 
didn't want to go there. So my kind of red flag would, I personally would cut my losses before I took on any debt, or if I no longer had the ability to cash flow it the way that I did in the first year. Um, that to me is the red flag. I think a green flag is consumer permission. So I think part of it is instinct and part of it is metrics on who is actually buying what you're offering. If you can get 10 people to buy it, you'll likely be able to get more than that eventually. And so when I looked at, you know, I started a, an in-person event and then COVID hit, right? I mean, I could have never anticipated that obstacle, um, which it, it ended up being fine in the long run. But I had 250 people attend my first event. And I probably did everything wrong because most people that do a large scale event have some kind of following first. So they have a blog and they have an audience and then they do their podcast and then they write their book. And usually the event is like the last thing they do. Now, I never saw myself as like a personal finance influencer. I think I'm kind of evolving into one now and, and getting a little bit more comfortable with that. But I just wanted to be an event producer. And so I bypassed kind of the normal trajectory and went right into producing an event where nobody knew who I was. I had no established audience and I just had a hustle to really market and get the word out about this event and, and kind of convince my speaker lineup to believe in my vision. And so knowing that I, I was able to kind of beat the odds in that sense and still get 250 people to come despite the fact that we're talking about the fire movement, which typically is thought to be people that are very frugal, right? Because we're saving such high percentages of our income. Right. How am I going to convince a like, bunch of not spend on anything and then retire at what? Like 40, 35. Yeah. 30, 40 years old. I mean, people in the, the fire movement are retiring. And so they're doing that mostly by, you know, frugality and living very far below their means. And so how am I going to convince those people to, you know, spend $200 on a ticket and then get their flight and their hotel and take off of work and find, you know, childcare in order to come to my event for a weekend. I, I was met with a lot of skepticism of, I'm not going to be able to get consumer permission for this. And I knew that that wasn't necessarily true because I'm in the fire movement. I save 60% of my income and I spend a lot of money going to various events. My favorite event that I go to is called World Domination Summit. And that ticket price is $700 just for the ticket. That doesn't even include hotel and travel and all that kind of stuff. So I knew if I would be willing to pay for it and that if I held on to the belief that I could create something valuable enough to be worth people's time and money that I could convince them to buy it. And it worked. You know, we've got 250 people that came to the first event. We had 400 people that came to the second event. And this event was just, you know, six weeks ago. We're still kind of in the throes of the pandemic, though I think things are starting to calm down. And so that says to me, you know, my max capacity is 560 people. And my dream is for me to sell out 560 tickets in one minute. That to me is like the, the ultimate dream, my ambitious dream. And I, I believe I have enough consumer permission by this point to make that a reality. But if, not, if I couldn't sell one ticket to my event, well, then that's a huge red flag. 
<laughs> so I think not taking on debt and getting that consumer permission are kind of the things that I would look out for when trying to decide if you're going to cut your losses. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love what you talked about in terms of consumer permission, because, you know, figuring out your market is, is a huge aspect of any entrepreneurial journey, right? Like who's going to buy your product. So that's such a big aspect of it that you spoke to. And before Christina, I'd love to hear about your red and green flags, but before we do, Diana, just really quickly, what is the world domination? World Domination Summit? Is that right? I know. it's It sounds like it's produced by like Pinky and the Brain or something, right? That's the, um, that's the vibe that I'm getting. Like, is everyone wearing like suits uh, of armor? What's happening there? So this is an event all about unconventional living. So I've actually modeled the economy conference after the World Domination Summit because I was so blown away by the production value, by the quality of people that I met at this event, by the content that I saw on stage. So I basically took my favorite parts of World Domination Summit put my own unique spin on it and, and kind of narrowed it down to a more specific subject matter, which is this topic of money. World Domination Summit, yes, they talk about money a little bit, but it's much broader. It's like, you know, there are people who are starting charities and talking about that. There are people like athletes will get on stage and talk about their athletic feats. Like it's just a, a, a group of people living very non-conventional lives and, uh, and sharing that and, and finding like-minded people. Fascinating. Wow. Well, we'll all definitely have to look that up. Um, Christina, what are your red and green flags in terms of, you know, business and when to cut bait and when to really just jump in? Yeah. I mean, I think to me, it's, it's a constant red and green flag. And, you know, I think if there's any message, I'm very much in my money. I manage my businesses by the numbers and, you know, again, the feedback I get most often after the fact is, you know, I used to just spend money based on what was right in front of me. Like, hey, this sounds like a good idea to spend money on in the business. And now it's like, no, it's actually making every single decision based on what the numbers are telling me. And to learn to read our financials like a book and our financials are, you know, both our North Star and our map for reaching the North Star. And I, I just don't think in all these types of conversations around business, the conversation that's missing is how to manage your money in your business. And every, every time we look to spend money outside of the constant burn rate, there's a red flag. And the red flag is, okay, what is the cost of this next investment in the business? Why do I want to invest this money? And what's the return on outcome? What is the outcome return I'm looking by this next piece of money that I'm fusing into the business? And that, that piece of money then needs to have a return associated with it. And if we can't justify the spend to attach to a very specific amount of income or results that we want to, uh, that we're, we need to come out of that, otherwise it's gonna damage the business, then, you know, it's a no-go. So there's those kind of on the more, on the bigger scale, but then, you know, I'm just, every, every single spend is really a red and green light if we're managing our business effectively. And then, you know, there's different, I love Dana again, that her red light is no debt. And that's, you know, bootstrapping is one way, it's kind of saving and bootstrapping. And that is one way to, you know, red light, green light. I think it's a really, really 
great one if you don't have a business plan. You know, I mean, if you don't, if you don't really have a strategy and you don't have your pro formas and you don't have um, a real plan outlined and the ambition and kind of the knowledge to be able to fulfill on that plan. On the other hand, when you do have that, I've, I teach leverage as an important part of money and leverage is, can be how you leverage debt, for example, as a means to start a business or grow a business. And I've leveraged millions and millions of dollars in my career and ultimately it's paid off very well that I couldn't have amassed the amount of millions for me had I not understood debt financing and, you know, thought about it, thought and really had a, a narrative, a positive kind of um, narrative and understanding of debt. And that's what I call good debt as opposed to bad debt. And when we have a mindset, for example, that debt is bad, it can create certain limitations. It can be a really great red light. Um, and on the other hand, it can be kind of having that mindset could keep us from from new or other opportunities. So, you know, again, it's going to be different for everyone. But bottom line, it's understanding our money in a way that allows us to be more prudent and being able to call our own red and green lights. Yeah, absolutely. And I really love what you said also about just, you know, letting the numbers be the North star and the map to the North star and really not holding on to things that aren't working. Cause I think in terms of entrepreneurship, if people have a vision or a dream um, and they don't have a plan to back it up or they don't have as a clear boundary, right? Like Dana, you're, you were very clear. You're like, I'm not going into debt, <laughs> but I think for, for, for the entrepreneurs out there who maybe don't have that clear distinction and that clear boundary, it's, it's hard to let go. It's hard to say, well, maybe this didn't work out and to pivot and to not be attached or have an ego with it as well. Um, so Christina, I want to kind of roll this question off of your answer. What are some common choices or mistakes that you've seen others make in the past, maybe that you've made that that have limited the success of a business? Yeah, I'd say the probably the biggest one is the, the well, there's a few. One is everything we've talked about, the not really knowing how much money you have to work with and not holding that money accountable and just overspending. So the biggest mistake is usually overspending in a business, just like we overspend in a household. And whatever we're doing in our household that's uh, ineffective, we're probably doing the same thing in our business because it came, again, it comes from the same money mindset and usually some lack of skill set or knowledge when it comes to understanding the money in our business. And then for me, the biggest mistakes financially have been, I'd say some of my own lack of confidence early on. And as a result, I gave a lot of my power away and I brought in business partners or I brought in different people. And ultimately what I learned is because it was a lack of confidence in my own abilities and, and just my real knowledge that, uh, you know, I'm very, I, I'm very well studied. Like I studied money. I studied business for years and years, intentionally, intently, desirably, but I still didn't trust my own knowledge. So what would happen is that even though I, I did know my, my intuition and knowledge knew what to do or wanted to pursue, I didn't have the personal confidence that I brought in others. 
I brought in too much staff. I brought in business partners. I brought in maybe too many coaches. This really try to fill this hole of lack of confidence. And as a result, everybody else got paid but me at the end of the day. So it's like I was funding all these different people and all these different salaries and all these business partners. Again, this is over years and years, all these different business partners who wanted to come in and get a piece or, you know, whatever it was. And they all eventually left with something or quite a bit. And I was left with not that much or nothing. So I'd say that was what that's been one of my biggest lessons is just to trust myself and to really you know, now I hold this self-confidence that I didn't have, but to really work on that self-confidence piece and be very discerning with others I bring into the business and make everything attached to results, you know, but just so easily buy into people's narrative or their story or their, their pitch. And I didn't attach those spins to results. So now every time I hire someone, it is very well articulated what the results are, what the role is, what the results are, you know, how long the time period is, if the results don't happen, what's going to happen automatically and built in conversations and communications and different things that are all these type of mechanisms now that I've learned over the years to make sure I'm not overspending in the business by paying too much money out, most usually on help as opposed to, let's say, technology or something. Wow. No, that's super valuable. I think for for everyone listening, I mean, the top takeaways that I just pulled from what Christina said, because every time you talk, I'm just like, oh, so much wisdom. Um, the first is overspending, which I think you mentioned a couple of times. A lot of businesses, you know, they get, they kind of get on a roll and it's really something where they're not paying attention. Um, and then you also mentioned lack of confidence. So that's a really important one. And I think that that also goes back to our the beginning of our conversation and talking about money mindset and really you know, having the confidence to be in that, in that space of abundance. Um, and then also, you know, bringing in, I guess this also speaks to overspending, but bringing in external contractors or coaches or, you know, people that you would pay over yourself. And so it's something where, you know, really watching those. So for everybody who out there is thinking about starting a business, those are really great takeaways. Diana, before we wrap up, did you want to add on to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that I also had lack of confidence that caused me to overspend in some areas. And I think it's pretty typical when you first get started in entrepreneurship to do that. Like I think about you know, a young guy that I knew, a young entrepreneur, and he tells me the first thing he did was spend $5,000 on a logo. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you know, like you can create a logo on Canva. That $5,000 could be spent elsewhere, you know? So I think it's overspending, but also overspending on the wrong things. Or another woman I knew spent like $20,000 on a Pete Vargas marketing course and mastermind. And I asked her, well, what was your return on investment for that spend? And she couldn't answer that question. It's just, that's what she thought she was supposed to do is get all these kind of fancy, you know, courses and masterminds and that kind of thing. So I would say in general, when you're first starting, and I had to learn this the hard way, like marketing is something that's really challenging for me. And so I was trying to outsource it. I think I spent probably close to $10,000 trying to outsource my marketing. And there was absolutely no return on investment. And I think it's because especially when you first get started, you're still trying to like figure out 
your brand promise, your voice, the way that you want your brand to appear. Um, you're trying to establish trust. And so to outsource that to someone else, they're never going to be able to do it the way you could do it. And so now I've had to come to the conclusion that my money is better spent working with a consultant who is teaching me better marketing tactics for me to do myself versus trying to get someone else to do it for me. And that has had a much better ROI. So yeah, I think the biggest mistakes really can be lack of confidence and then overspending in the wrong areas. Absolutely. Um, well, this has just been a phenomenal hour. Um, I'd love to have both of you share um, where people can find you to work with you and the businesses and the podcasts that you host and have created. So Diana, we'll start with you and then Christina will let you end for today and then I'll read our brief intro. Thank you both so much for joining Awesome. Well, thanks so much for having me. I am with the Economy Conference. This is the event that I founded. You can find me at economyconference.com. And economy is spelled with an M-E at the end, not an M-Y. And there on the website, you can check out our programming. You can see the past speakers. Um, you can get to our YouTube channel and watch all of the speeches. And then you can also sign up for my mailing list where I you know, share exclusive content. You'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale as well as you know, announcements for next year's speakers. And then you can also listen to me every single day of the year on the Optimal Finance Daily podcast. All right, Christina, we're going to let you break. All right. Well, I'm pretty easy to find, but if anybody has listened and is really has their interest peaked on going to money school. I, I have a money school and it's called thewisemoneymethod.com is the place to go. I'm working on um, a quiz to just see where you are in your uh, um, financial, if you how, how well you know your financial sovereignty number, how well you know your business numbers. And also on the website, if anybody just wants like a 45 minute free coaching consulting session, I go in, I listen, I try to hear where the gaps are. And as a, as a result of that, I point whoever's listening in the next direction. So anybody can find that at wisemoneymethod.com and or listen to me on the Wealthy Wealthy podcast. Absolutely. All right, I'm going to read our brief intro. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this live stream, the December Finance Podcast Week Roundtable featuring Christina Weiss of the Wealthy Wealthy Podcast, founder of Good Life Companies, and Diana Merriam of the Optimal Daily Finance Podcast and Economy Conference. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, Finance Podcast Week has live stream sessions like this one with top finance podcasters and experts from around the world. We also have exclusive recorded episodes on the Finance Podcast Week channel for free. If you join late or want to have another listen to these amazing podcasters and financial experts, you can replay this roundtable on the Finance Podcast Week channel. Finance Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetizing platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience. For everyone listening, you can start your own live stream for free on Podbean. The content of Finance Podcast Week is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice.
Nothing contained on our site, live streams, and podcasts constitute a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Podbean or any third-party service providers to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments. Thank you both so much for joining us, and we wish you a happy holiday season and a happy new year.